uh, the passage about the the wise man or the magi. It, it's a uh, uh, one of the I, I don't know most well-known stories in the Bible, and, and, and that's because it's attached to Christmas. So it's oftentimes uh, uh, brought up a, at least once a year, and uh, and it's also just a part of our uh, Judeo-Christian culture. Uh, and so, you know, surrounding Christmas as a national holiday, you know, you see different things as you're driving along, the three wise men or different things like that. And, and so because it's just so in, um, talked about so much or thought about so much, it, it's actually a very difficult passage to preach on or talk about. And the reason why is because everybody's heard something about the passage and if what we've heard about the passage isn't mentioned in that sermon, then we kind of feel like we missed something. <laughs> but there would be too much to talk about to hit on everything that everyone has heard about this passage. There's this um, little show that our... I, I'm not going to say our family enjoys watching. I would say most of the family tolerates it. Uh, Olive, probably less than most. But it, it's called Forged in Fire. And um, there's always at least in every episode I can think of, and I don't know, I think I've watched like maybe 20 seasons of it now. No, I don't know how many seasons there are. It seems like there's just unlimited numbers of seasons, especially if you came into it fresh without having... Anyways, there's this one... So the whole point is these people, it's this competition to make these knives, and they have these testings to see how well you did when you forged your own knife. They'll have you know, just a piece of iron or an oral tool, and they have to melt it down and forge a knife out of it. And they always have this part uh, of the episode where they take this knife, let's just say it's a knife that someone has forged, and they have to test it to see if it was forged correctly. And that basically means whether or not the it's going to be able to hold its uh, sharpness or it's going to fold over or even break. And they take some sort of object, and it's a different object every episode, but it could just be a huge chunk of metal or a giant rock or something, something that's very hard, that's harder than the knife, and the guy will just beat the knife on it until it like breaks or bends or whatever. And and before they do that, it's the same guy, he always says the same thing, and he says, now, it's not what the knife does to the rock, it's what the rock does to the knife that we're interested in. And the reason why he says that is because there's information about what it may or may not have done to the rock, but that information, whether real or false, it's really just not useful information in regards to what it is they're trying to figure out here, which is how well this person forged the knife, because it's just going to destroy every knife because it's harder than even the best knife. So he says the information that we want to look at is, what kind of damage this does to the knife, not what kind of damage the knife does to the rock. And that's what these passages like this uh, need sort of the same warning every time we come to them. Because there's so much information that people draw into this, and it's not necessarily incorrect information, it's just information that is sort of irrelevant to the point as to why this story was told. And a lot of times the Bible self-regulates that and doesn't give all the information. 
And, and that's because even if we had all the information, that information isn't useful for the point that's being made. And it's not that it's false, it's just, you know. And, and so there's, especially when a story is talked about a lot and there Uh, details aren't given. There's a lot of effort to go into history and other sources to try and figure out what that information is because we just feel like all information is good information. But, but, and it's not that it's not good, it's just, it sort of easily takes us in a direction other than why the passage was told. And so what I want to kind of do is to just go through the passage uh, line by line quickly, though, and just touch on uh, some different things that might be useful, might not be useful. It's sort of up to you guys to determine that based on this passage. It starts off, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It, it doesn't say how long after. It just says after. Um, oftentimes, for ease of use in telling the story, to connect the stories, you'll see wise men in the manger scene. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, And the reason why I say not necessarily the case is because people oftentimes look at the fact that at the end of the story, Herod kills all the children two years and under. And so people feel like this, the after has to have been two years after. But that also is a bit of an assumption because It's assuming that the star appeared on the instant that Jesus was born and that what the Magi told Herod was that it appeared, you know, this many years ago and that Herod took those two years and said two years and under. Those are all kind of assumptions that are made. There's nothing that says that the star came up the instant Jesus was. It it was either sometime after. It, it could have possibly have been prior to, to account for the... It, we just don't know because that's not something that, you know, provides that much. And, and to say that Herod heard two years from the Magi and then said two years and under, that may or may not be true either because he may have heard it appeared six months ago and he just wanted to cover his bases and kill everyone from two years down. A lot of that would happen with a person like Herod. So, so we, we just don't know how, but it's just important that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, King Herod was the king of the Jews at that point. And what that was was the tribe of Judah, the tribe that came back from captivity. It wasn't necessarily all of Israel. Uh, a lot of Israel had been dispersed to places unknown even at this point. But of the tribes that returned, the tribe of Judea, he was the ruler or the king over that region. It wasn't a ruler that they had chosen. It was a ruler that was imposed on them by the Roman Empire. But nonetheless, so you have this picture of this contrast between the king of the Jews, he's about to say, and the king that is the king of the Jews, but the king that is the king of the Jews is uh, symbolic of the oppression that they've been suffering under, under the Roman Empire. It says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Um, Magi 
is the word that we get magician from. And so people immediately kind of think of some sort of hocus pocus thing that's going on with the word magi. Uh, People, sometimes translations say wise men. And the reason why is because, uh, well, I don't know how much of this I need to go through. Uh, Apart from the story, people have come to a determination or some have that the word magi in Greek had its original sources in Persian. And the connection to Persia and Babylon fits with the east. And it was also where uh, Israel was taken, or the tribe of Judah in particular, was taken captive up into. And at that time when they were taken captive, uh, sorry, this is a long story. I hope it's not that boring. But, But when Israel was taken captive, they encountered a process that uh, the Babylonians, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus of Persia, that, that region, uh, what, what that region did, they were ruled the, the world that, that was known at that time in, in, this, in that area, you might say. But what they did was when they conquered a country, they would take the best and the brightest of the people. They would sort of determine who you know, had the highest SAT. This is another reason why it's probably not a good idea to get a high SAT score. <laughs> but whoever had the highest scores, you think it was going to be, well, it ended up you got sort of conscripted in. And it was actually probably good news because you were treated well. And this is where the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the story of Daniel. And, and, and so what it was was they were brought in and they were taught all the learning that the world had to offer, or at least what they thought of as the world at that time. Uh, everything was sort of, they would, what they were trying to do was just bring in knowledge from everywhere. As they conquered places, what, what they wanted was to just take all that knowledge and bring it all together. And, and so what it kind of was, was the wise men or people, a group from that area, from that tradition of just gathering up all the information of the world. And a part of that information at the time was uh, things like astrology. And so when you read through a like commentary, one guy I was reading through, he, he never really makes a comment, but on this passage he just couldn't help himself. He says, the magi who were addicted to astrology... It's sort of like, well, I don't know if the passage actually says that they were addicted to astrology. I don't even know if you can like get that from history, but astrology, what he was saying is, is like they had this, it wasn't just wise people or uh, it was a lot of like pseudoscience stuff going on. But the problem is in history, pseudoscience and science wasn't like a clearly divided field of interest. And to just label them as bad because within the body of knowledge that they were a part of, there had been things that now we consider to have no knowledge whatsoever. That's sort of building up a a straw man argument on it. But the point of going into a lot of that history is to cast sort of this image, and the point that's often made is that God can even use bad people. And here we have, if you really look at the history Here's these people that are addicted to sorcery, magic, and astrology, and God even used them. That's sort of what I mean by getting off the point. Because it is a true point that God uses bad people, 
But it is not a true point that there is a division between good and bad people, and God can even use the bad people as he uses the good people. When, when people tried to make that point with Jesus by calling him a good teacher, he, he sort of cut them off and just said, there's no one good but God alone. Why do you call me good? And, and that's what I mean by sometimes we go through the history, and it's important when people are talking about a passage to think through, especially as they bring in history, because it'll be a very subtle way of bringing up something that actually isn't what Scripture is talking about. What, what is the truth of what the Scripture is, is that yes, God does use bad people, but it's not that God can use bad people, it's that God only uses bad people. <laughs> the only person that he's ever used that wasn't a bad person was Jesus. And other than Jesus, Everyone else is, is an example of God using bad people. So, so yes, that is a true point, but the inference that there is good and bad and God can use either one, uh, that, that's a, not an inference that can be made from this. Sorry, I'm going to try and not go into too much of that. It, it says, uh, they came from the East Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born? king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and came to worship him. Uh, They had some sort of information about this prophecy that was probably a prophecy from uh, the prophet uh, Balaam, who who wasn't uh, Jewish. He was a Midianite. And, And we'll talk about that story in a minute. But he, it's just a very brief mention of this star. And what's interesting about it, another piece of information, since Daniel came up and was considered the chief of the Magi in that area, and they conscripted knowledge from everyone that they took over, when they took over Israel and they brought up Daniel, what they were bringing into their body of knowledge was the Hebrew Bible. And what, if there is anything that's interesting about this part that, that might be useful, it would be that amongst those who had gathered all the information of the world, when the Hebrew Bible came into that body of information, it had gained respect to such a degree that on the most obscure of passages, these guys take time off and you know, go all this way with this price to follow after it. Uh, people who was not within their culture to have the preeminence of the Hebrew Bible, but it's the Hebrew Bible within the body of knowledge that had come to be respected enough that even the most obscure reference they were trying to follow or track down. And... I think that does fit with the passage because the passage is basically referencing over and over again God's word and how it, even the most obscure parts come to be seen as true. And this story is really a story about how people came to see that God's word and that his promise happened exactly according to what had been said uh, hundreds of years prior, thousand years prior. It says, 
When King Herod heard this, uh, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Uh, there's always in every passage of the Bible when it's preached uh, a desire to show that the distinction that the passage is making is between good people and bad people, and we already talked about that. But the distinction here is clearly not between good people and bad people. And if it were to be between good people and bad people, you would have to say that if all the information you had was the story, uh, the magi seem like they're the good people (laughs) because they're just bringing some gifts. They're just rejoicing. They're just happy. There doesn't seem to be anything sinister going on. Whereas with King Herod, uh, you know, he's going, he's about to just kill a bunch of children. And then there's the indifference of people. But the distinction that's pulled out of the passage isn't one between good people and bad people. It's a distinction between those that are troubled and those that are not. It says Herod, and then it doesn't say his name again. It says he and all of Jerusalem with him. So there's a body, a group of people that's put in contrast to the Magi, and the description about that group of people, of which Herod is sort of the focal point or the banner or the uh, spokesperson for that group in Jerusalem, is that they're troubled. There's a distinction being made between us when we're troubled and us when we're not, or a group of people that's troubled and a group of people that's not. And it's encouraging us to ask, why is it that they're troubled and how is it that we can not be troubled? (laughs) How is it that we can end up rejoicing? It says, when he had called all of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and the law means he had called all the people that understood the Hebrew Bible more than anyone else at that time, the the experts. And it was in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was considered to be the center of learning or knowledge that would come from the Hebrew Bible. It would be the experts of all the world on this one little part. You got this people that have included it in all the knowledge of the world, and they're following just based on this one obscure verse, and now it's coming as a surprise to those who are experts in the entire thing, and it's brought before them, and here's what Herod says. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born, which is a different description than what the Magi had. The Magi said, uh, king of the Jews, and Herod immediately understands or puts into his mind that this is the Messiah. Who the Messiah was, was someone who was spoken of throughout the Hebrew Bible as someone who was going to come to be the Savior of all of Israel, and not just the Savior of all of Israel, but would end up being a blessing to all the nations of the world. And it was talked about in a lot of different senses. It was a very difficult thing to comprehend. And that's why it's going through this passage saying it was someone from Bethlehem. It says it was someone from Nazareth. It was someone coming out of Egypt. If you just had all those references, it'd be like, well, where is he coming from? And that's why they're going to the trouble of showing that the life of Jesus, these different points, hits these different areas as to what God was talking about. And Herod puts into his mind 
that this is a plan that God is doing, and he immediately wants to find out more about that plan. So what Herod is sort of that spokesperson of those that are troubled about, in reality is troubled about something that he suspects or knows to be or believes to be a plan that God is working out, which is an interesting thing. Because sometimes we have a feeling that God is doing something, but it's a troubling thing to us. You know, in fact, oftentimes personally, when I've known that God was doing something that I could tell because things that were out of the ordinary were changing. Like, for instance, these people coming in, not that Magi showed up at my door or something like that, but, but other things out of the ordinary happened, and you could tell it was a time of change. But it also just, like, like for instance, you know, like multiple times, uh, we would think through what, what's the best school for our kids to go to, and, and it wasn't working out. <laughs> And they ended up going to a, uh, another school. And, and, and it ended up being, oh, I can now, in hindsight, I could see what God was doing. And it ends up ter- per- turning out great. <laughs> but at that moment when I thought God was doing something, it was very troubling. <laughs> and we spent months in that sense of, in that camp of troubled. Uh, it might be having to move. When, when that happens, you're sort of in this moment of trouble, and then, you know, you end up moving, and it's like, oh, okay, well, this is, I'm really glad that all happened. But at that beginning place, you spend these months just feeling trouble. Sometimes it's your job. You know, this isn't working out, that isn't working. And, and it's God changing things and him having a plan in your life and him bringing you to a place, but it's hard for us to see what that place is, and as all we see is the change and the way that we've worked it out and the way that we've tried to figure it out, and whatever the case is, we just encounter this moment where we're just really troubled. But once we see how God's plan works out, even when the trouble is something catastrophic, it's very common to hear people say, look, in one sense, I wish things had happened differently, but now seeing what's happened and seeing where God's taken me, I almost have to wish, I'm almost just glad it all happened the way it did. <laughs> but for everybody, even when we know that God's about to change something, there is this sort of stumbling block that can spiral us into that camp uh, of those that are troubled. And, and that's not where we should be. It says, We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And the king heard this and was disturbed, all of Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people and the chief priests, they asked them, they said, where the Messiah be born? He said, in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. Something that was written hundreds of years prior to Jesus. You see that the contrast that's developing is 
here's a group of people that are taking joy and following and trying to figure out what is it God's doing, and there's an anticipation of something good and something wonderful that they want to be a part of in what God is doing. And then there's another side that also sees God is doing something, but it's troubling. And of that group that's troubled, Herod is sort of the spokesperson for it gives some more information about how Herod responds to that feeling of troubled. It says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, which was uh, information that was useful for him, or he felt, felt was useful when he made plans to kill all the children that were two years and under. It says, Down at the bottom, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So he's gathering information, and it's for a plan that he has to sort of combat the plan that God has. And it's going to result in a a great evil. And he says he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He, he basically just lies about it. And that's something that's very common, maybe not so sinister to us. But oftentimes we'll just say, Well, I just want to worship God. I just want to follow God. And what we say with our words is not exactly what works out in our actions. Lots of people say, I just want to follow Jesus. We have this trouble and we're just like, well, I just want what God wants. But that's not what's going on. And what you see with Herod, what we oftentimes do is we just secretly sort of press forward trying to gain more and more information to be able to facilitate a plan for what we think would be best for us. And that's sort of the root of that feeling of trouble, is the reason why we feel trouble, oftentimes, even though we know God's working a plan, we have a difficult time trusting that God knows what we really want, that God is going to give us what we really want, and we have this idea of how we think what we need or what we deserve or what would be best for us. We have this idea for this, and even though we might be saying, I'm going to worship God, I'm going to follow God, we're really just pushing all these plans forward. And when we push those plans forward, it always ends up being harmful to someone. It says, And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen while it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was which was Bethlehem. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming into the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down low and worshipped him. What we know from last week when we looked at the manger scene, however long, maybe six months after that, maybe if that was whatever the case, the picture that we got from that that starts this picture off is... Mary and Joseph and Jesus being born in poverty, in a manger. And the Magi 
came following the star, they also had information that it was the king of the Jews. And in their deciphering through how to rationally approach this, it it makes sense that if you were looking for the king of the Jews or a child that was born of the king of the Jews, that you would go to the king of the Jews or you would go to Jerusalem. That's an inference that they made from the passage that actually wasn't there. But it's from our experience that we would do, and that's what we rationally when we proceed. And so they went there to the most likely place in their minds for this king who was born to be, and that ended up not being the case. But if they had just continued just following the star, which had nothing based in rationality, I mean, it's this weird supernatural thing that has happened. And even if you say it was some sort of natural comet or whatever, the timing would have to be supernatural. It's, you know, there's something here that's going on that's out of the ordinary, and that follows them in spite of the fact that they went to the wrong place based on their inferences. It brought them, and they went through this whole mess with Herod. And this weird, When someone comes to you secretly and says this stuff, you get a feeling that something weird's going on. And it, whether they did or didn't, in my estimation, that there'd be this weirdness. And, and then there's this sense that even though they had gone down that road, the star is still leading them and leads them to a king that I, I don't think it would be unreasonable to say is in poverty. <laughs> or just... Bethlehem wouldn't look like a place for a king. The family wouldn't look like a family of a king. But it doesn't need to be that. They were just overjoyed at having been led there. And that's something that's one of the reasons also why I think we're troubled. Because what we want is for our answer to fit with what we see here in the world, to be in that Jerusalem, to be coming from the king, to be this royal thing, and we want to see it fit. But when God leads us to the answer of what we really need, it ends up looking a little bit like this family, and then we're disappointed. They were not disappointed. In other words, the joy that they were experiencing was the joy of following and being led. It was not the joy of their expectations matching what it is that they thought. You see what I'm saying about the difference with that? Oftentimes we're troubled, and the real root of the trouble is, is we're just having such a difficult time letting go of our expectations about what's going to bring us happiness, what's going to bring us joy in life. And, and even though that is not the case, it's not going to bring us there. And God is, even though we keep pressing in that direction, God brings us to where it is actually going to be. And it really does give us joy. But the joy is in knowing that we're being led and that we're following, it's not necessarily in us arriving at a place where the rest of the world would consider it a place to be joyful. It says, uh, 
I'll start going here through this quickly. Sorry. It says, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and more. In other words, they, they went on this journey following, and their expectation was that they would have an opportunity to give. Um, that, that you could preach a whole sermon on. I, I'm just going to leave it there for a second because I'm going to come back to that. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child, the mother, during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord, him, Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I, I call my son. Um, there's two prophecies or prophets, times that a prophet spoke that are mentioned. One is the star and one is out of Egypt. And both of those are mentioned in a prophecy of a guy named Balaam who was from Midian. And this guy eventually gave uh, an evil plan to the Midianites to help destroy Egypt and was destroyed with... It wasn't that the guy was a good guy, but he had a relationship with God, and God spoke to him. And when people saw Israel coming out of Egypt and saw all the different things that were happening, they were watching what was happening, and they could see that, that there was something stronger than the might of armies behind them, that the real God of the world was behind them. And it was a frightening thing because they saw the plans of God as being to their detriment, which wasn't necessarily the case. And so they knew they needed something, and so they knew that there was this guy that God honored, they thought, whatever this guy said. And so they hired him to come out and curse Israel before they came into the land. And, and he said, well, let me see what God tells me. And God actually told him not to go. But then he ended up going. And that's the whole story of Balaam's donkey. But anyways, he gets there and he blesses Israel instead of cursing them. And it says... In the chapter that brings up both of these, because uh, they both were talked about by Balaam in his blessing, it says that when he saw that God was pleased with him blessing Israel, he decided to bless. <laughs> he made a decision, even though he hadn't been following God, he had been saying he was following God, but it was just that God was using him. And then when he saw that it pleased God, he changed courses and decided to bless Israel again. And then, in these two things that he says, there is the mention of coming, this Savior coming out of Israel and this star that would mark the course. And, and in between those two, he says something really interesting. Because the kings cut him off and says, why have you blessed instead of cursed? We, we paid you <laughs> to curse. Which many jobs are very similar of being paid to curse. <laughs> rather than plus, 
but that's a side, that's, a whole, that's another sermon. But the part that I think relates to this is that he says, don't you understand that I can do neither good nor bad. I can add nothing good nor add nothing bad to God's plan. And that's an interesting thing. And when we look, I'll go back to this, the gifts that the Magi gave. A lot of people say, well, you know, it was really good these guys showed up because all of this happened. And uh, they used that money to flee to Egypt. They wouldn't have had that money otherwise. And uh, they used that money to flee. So, So in a sense, the Magi did bring good into God's plan. Except for the fact that if the Magi hadn't have come and hadn't have gone to Herod and stirred up all of Jerusalem, then Herod probably wouldn't have killed all these kids. <laughs> Whenever you think about adding something good, it's usually at the, you know, pulling the blinders over, the adding of something bad. <laughs> If they hadn't have said anything to Herod, if they hadn't have gone to Jerusalem, if they hadn't have made that mistake, then all of these children would have been alive. If you asked them, well, I mean, was it worth it? Because at least you got some cash in this family. No, that wouldn't have been worth it. You know, I remember when, you know, oftentimes when, when I was younger, I would think about, all the things, oh, you know, it's just really good. God worked this out, and I was able to do this, and I was able to do that. And now as I get older, I realize, well, yeah, but I probably shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem and gotten Herod because all this disastrous stuff has happened. It makes you almost realize, it's like, I really shouldn't say anything because anything I do that might be construed as good just has these other ramifications that are just horrific, And so you tend to just think, I'm just going to sit here and just be quiet. And then just by being quiet, harm comes. (laughs) It's like you can't win. (laughs) I know if I tell my kids something, it'll recap. If I don't, it will too. (laughs) The joy is not in what good or bad or the trouble, not in the bad or the good or whatever, of what we mistakenly think we are doing to God's plans. God's plans are working out in the midst of everything that's going. And the joy isn't going to be found in that. We keep wanting to attach our joy to, well, I came ready to give and then I gave and now the thing. That's not, or I'm going to solve a problem of this and that. The joy comes in just following, in knowing that God is leading and knowing that God cares enough to pull me along into his plan. And it's, and it's just the joy that's found in being able to give. And it doesn't have to be attached to any kind of fundamental change that's going on. I guess what I'm trying to say is, we, I don't even know how to say this. We want our joy to be rooted in some sort of difference that we think we've made. But the reality is the only difference that we make tends to just contribute to death. And, and what Jesus has 
come to do by him dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and us having a relationship that, that even though maybe they shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem, even though they sh- maybe shouldn't have had this conversation, even though they maybe shouldn't have, God works out his plan in spite of that. That the reason why Jesus takes the burdens off of us is because he takes the weight of, of, of the good and bad depending on us making the right decision and doing the right thing. Because if our joy is dependent on that, we're going to find ourselves troubled and sorrowful for a long time. But the good news is that God gives us a joy. He gives us a way of participating. He gives us an ability to give that's apart from all that. And he takes that burden of working it all out on himself. And he doesn't put it on us. In other words, the joy is that if it's been based on forgiveness, if it's based on what Jesus has done, if it's based on Jesus making things right, then we're finally free to have the joy that would normally only be the case if we were very successful, which we mistakenly think we are, but now we really are attached to something successful, but it's something that Jesus has done and that God is doing and and that God is planning so that we can enjoy the good part of that without having to bear the responsibility of actually, in other words, we're, able to enjoy it as though we are good, even though we're not. Does that make sense? We don't have to have the burden of who's the good person, who's the bad person. God's treating us and giving us a relationship and giving us plans in our life and accomplishing things in our life as though we are the good person, even though we're not. And that's what the blessing that's here in this story. And the blessing, I think, is throughout the entire Bible. It's a blessing of being treated as a son, of being treated as righteous, of being treated as holy, even though we're not, but because of the forgiveness that we have and our adoption into God's family and Jesus coming down and becoming part of us. All of these things about this story point to this hope that we have in the plans that God has for us. And so as we sort of enter into the new year, the the hope is not to stumble over the stumbling block and start to set our year on the things that we think we're adding, good or bad, and trying to not do this and do that. It's okay to do that. We all just naturally do that. We're going to do that. But the hope that God's talking about is something that's apart from all that, that we should be able to see God's plans working out in our life. And we'll see it in these times of change. We'll see it when he's starting to do something. And it's nothing to be afraid of because it's not going to be a plan based on whether we're good or bad. It's a plan based on Jesus, his son. It's a plan based on God accepting us on forgiveness. And so it's a plan for our good and a plan that we can enjoy Falling and waiting, following and waiting to see what God does. And we should be prepared to give, you might say. Prepared to maybe not have it meet some sort of false expectation like this family. You could say all of those things, but we're never going to like be able to get away from that. <laughs> it's just that in the end, we'll be able to rejoice. Let's pray. 
Uh, Jesus, we just thank you so much for being so good for, to us. And thank you, Lord, for just covering over all of our mistakes. And I pray that we would just be able to accept this promise that you've given us and live in the joy that comes from following you, from following your plans in our life. And live in the joy of where it is that you're bringing us, Lord. And please just pull our heart away from that feeling of being troubled that we just keep falling into over and over again. We pray that you would protect us, give us courage, give us strength, give us peace, and help us to just find rest in your plans for us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.